But all I want to do this morning is really just intro the book of Matthew through this genealogy here in the first 17 verses. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it because there's a lot of names and we're going to work through this together. So I have been practicing because these are, these are uh, mostly Hebrew names. And so I've been practicing for you guys. So I'm going to try to do my best to honor uh, the cultural pronunciation of these names. So let's stand, because it's a new year. Let's just stand, and we'll just stand up. Let's honor God's word together. Uh, we'll read it, and, um, and then you can, and we'll pray. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiad. Abiad fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. As we get started this morning, I want to invite you, as we read this genealogy, this ancestry, the family tree of Jesus, the original listeners of this story, when they would have heard these names, I'm sure as you would, if I were to read the genealogy of your family, feel all kinds of emotions, they would have all kinds of painful memories and good memories. Um, these are real people and real stories. And so, as we hear these stories, maybe we're reminded of our own stories, and we're reminded of our own family trees and the beauty and the brokenness there. And there is an invitation to, to see ourselves in these stories. So, let's just take a moment to take a deep breath. Take a deep breath, and whatever you're holding, whatever you're bringing in this morning, whatever you're carrying, last week I taught on Psalm 139, and we kind of reflected on our year, and this beautiful verse in Psalm 5, the Lord encircles you, and he holds you with his hand. And I just want to remind us that God holds our stories, and, and he's working in our stories, and he's bending the arc of history towards his purposes and his power and his presence. And so let's just bring whatever is inside to the Lord and hold it before him this morning. And whatever you're feeling, whether that's anxiety or sadness or loneliness or joy, let's just hold it before him and ask him to speak in this moment. So let's take a moment of silence, and, uh, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll get in.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. We know that you are here. We want to acknowledge your presence with us. Thank you that you encircle our lives. Thank you that you are committed to transforming us into the image of Jesus day by day, one degree of glory to the next. And so we want to just open up our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies to the truth that you have for us this morning. Would you come and transform us by the power of your spirit? Would you speak to us in a way that we can understand? May we respond in obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In her well-known essay, The Fisherwoman's Daughter, author Ursula Le Guin writes this. First sentences are doors to worlds. Matthew begins his story with a sentence and then a genealogy with 47 names, a record of Jesus' family of origin. And I might add, not exactly the most compelling opening line to the most epic story ever told, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. I mean, this is the story that shaped the trajectory of Western civilization. This is the story that is, I think, for many of us, the reason why we're here. And it's just, here's Jesus's family tree. Um, I mean, when I think about a good opening line, some other stories come to mind, other opening lines come to mind. See if you know, this is participation. The king is dead. Long live the queen. Anybody know? C.S. Lewis, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Great opening line. Just that whole section there. Call me Ishmael. Anybody? Moby Dick, yes. We have some readers, some novel people. Moby Dick, Herman Melville. One that maybe is not as well known. I am an invisible man. Anybody? Ralph Ellison, the invisible man. Actually, a great novel. A very subversive novel. I know that you know this, my, one of my daughters reading, uh, has read this recently. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Yes. Busy, thank you. Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. These are good opening lines. Now, if we're honest, this is the part of the Bible. If you have like a Bible reading plan that moves you through the Bible, this is the part that you normally skip, the genealogy. But that would be a mistake, a massive mistake, because this is no ordinary genealogy. It is a strange genealogy. It is a curious genealogy, but it is no ordinary genealogy. And Matthew has placed it here strategically at the beginning of his story for an important reason that I hope to make clear to you this morning. And one of the things you need to know about Matthew as we start on this journey is that Matthew is a literary masterpiece. It is complex it is layered, it is subversive, which is to basically say it is human in the best kind of way. Just like you and me, it is complex and layered. And often what you think you know, like you've, how many times have you read that line, the account, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ? You'll be like, yeah, I know that. But like, that's how Matthew works. On the surface, there's a meaning that you think you know. But often in Matthew, what you think you know is only the surface level of multiple layers of meanings. And so you, we have to learn the art of paying attention to what's happening beneath the surface because only about 50% of what you think you know, you actually know. And then we're going to go down and we're going to, it's like inception, you know, we're going to go down and we're going to go down and we're going to go down, which is how Matthew works. Like a good novel, the more you read it, the more you see the subtleties, the nuance, the brilliance that is the book of Matthew. Which brings me, speaking of layers, to Christopher Nolan. I mean, Matthew is like a good Christopher Nolan. I don't know if you're a fan, any Christopher Nolan fans in here. Thank you very much. But Christopher Nolan has this way, whether it's Inception or uh, I watched Tenet a couple, I mean, just blew my mind. I, I still don't think I really understand Tenet. But like Christopher Nolan has this ability to write a script and, and film it in such a way with like just the angles and everything. He begins with disorientation. He drops you somewhere, right? And then he bends the space and time continuum multiple times in multiple directions. He like folds it and then he folds it again and then he folds it again. And you're confused and that's just five minutes in. And, and then often, you, I found with Christopher Nolan films, you can't make sense of the beginning of the film until you interpret it through the lens of the final scene. Then you begin to look back and you're like, oh, 
And then you're like, but I still don't understand. And you watch it again and you watch it again because it's all interconnected, but it's so complex and it has layers of meaning. And it's like a story of stories all kind of wrapped into one another. It's like this, next slide, um, like a mosaic. That's kind of what the book of Matthew is. Are you, anybody Spider-Man fans, right? Like Spider-Man, the multiverse, the one that just came out. I don't care what you think about the actual movie, but like how cool was it they brought all of those characters in and there's this big story that is Spider-Man. And then there's all these little stories and all the Peter part. I mean, I don't want to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. It's like a year. I feel like there should be some sort of like a expiration date on when I'm allowed to talk about these movies. It's been like a year or whatever since it's been out. But just multiple Peter Parkers show up in that movie. And this mosaic, like a good mosaic, there's multiple. If you look in and zoom in, there's characters and there's plot twists and narrative pieces, chunks that are in there. But then you zoom out and you see the whole. Next slide. Same thing with Star Wars. During the pandemic, my kids watch Star Wars, uh, not just the new ones are okay, the good ones, the old ones, the original ones. They watch those, and we dove deep into the universe of Star Wars. And this is a good example of what that looks like. So many individual characters and stories, but a bigger story. And that is kind of how I want you to hear what's happening in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In recent years, there has been, this is probably to understate it, a resurgence of interest for Americans in particular in uh, researching and discovering our ancestry. There's all kinds of sites now, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, where for like $99 a month, you could subscribe, you take a genetic test. Do you know that um, genealogical subscription services are one of the fastest growing businesses in America? Uh, 20 years in, there's about 35 million Americans that have taken a DNA test. The majority of the testers worldwide are actually Americans. Uh, and uh, recently, the Blackstone Group acquired a majority stake in Ancestry.com. You know how much for? $4.7 billion. So there's a lot of interest. And I think as Americans in particular, we're finding out that being cut off from our past, like, like the land and the people we grew up with and our history, is not particularly emotionally or spiritually healthy uh, for us, and that there's wisdom in our maturity uh, by understanding how our past is influencing our present and our future. As one author puts it, you may have Jesus in your heart, but you have grandpa in your bones. And if you've ever been to therapy, one of the first things they'll do is actually have you do what's called a genogram or a life story, where you actually map out your family. This sounds terrifying, uh, and, and I'm terrified for my kids to do this one day, but they, you actually map out your family tree, and then you notice all of the connections where there was cutoff, where somebody got married, there was a cutoff, maybe there was a divorce, maybe there was abuse or an addiction of some sort, and you begin to see patterns, and you begin to realize these things that I struggle with are not just me, they've been handed down over generations, and I've been shaped by. And again, it's not destiny, but it is helpful and informative to be able to see some of those patterns. Now, in the ancient world, a genealogy was more than just historical data or a therapeutic insight about your family of origin. It was a critical piece, and particularly if you were a storyteller, it was a critical piece of storytelling that signaled something about your identity, your status, and your place in the world. Genealogies were um, less Ancestry.com and more LinkedIn. They were resumes that you would put forward to other people to tell them something about your credibility or your plausibility in speaking to something. If you're a first century Jew and you were listening to this story and you hear these words and you're gathered around a table maybe and you're exploring Christianity for the first time or the movement of Jesus, when this is read, you sit up a little bit straighter and you lean in a little bit more. This genealogy would have been the obvious place to start if you were attempting to establish the plausibility, the credibility, and the continuity of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah long promised to God's people Israel. You see, a genealogy roots Jesus in time and place and space, right? Like we often read Jesus like Star Wars. In a galaxy long, long time ago, Far, far away, you know, in that opening scene when the yellow text, you know, whatever that font that is, comes down there. Some of you probably know that, but it comes down. That, that's how we think. We think fiction, it's myth, it's just a fairy tale. But this is no, Jesus was a man who came from somewhere. He's got a story. And you need to know that story if you're going to understand who this man is and his claims on your life. 
N.T. Wright, in writing about the importance of genealogy, says, for many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, a town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession coming down a city street, we watch the figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. And that's where Jesus is found. But there's more. Remember, this is no ordinary genealogy. This is a strange genealogy. It's a curious genealogy. This word here, translated genealogy for some of you, or maybe ancestry for others of you, is not actually the normal word that's translated genealogy. In the original Greek in which Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, the first words there where it says an account of the genealogy, the phrase in Greek is actually two words, biblos genesis. Biblos genesis. Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but it should. It can also be translated book of Genesis. So right at the beginning, Matthew makes this provocative statement right in the opening lines. And what he's saying is what's happened with Jesus of Nazareth is a kind of new genesis. It is a new creation of the world. It's the climax. If you think about good story, like plot structure, right? There's a tension that builds over time with the characters of a story, and it it reaches kind of a climax, and then that tension is resolved. There's resolution, and then there's transformation and a new reality that's opened up that we couldn't see before. And he's saying that's what's happening with Jesus. He is the climax and the resolution to the story that goes back to Genesis. So we don't get to make Jesus what we want. We have to see that Jesus is part of this story where a creator God, the God of the universe, creates human beings in his image. They sin and he promises in Genesis 3 to bring wholeness and restoration to his people. And as those people journey with God, they eventually fall into exile, which you see show up several times in this story. They get judged by God for their idolatry and their injustice. But God promises to restore them. And there's all these promises that are like a drumbeat through the story of the Old Testament. And what Matthew is saying to us, what Matthew is screaming to us, is that Jesus is the one who's come to fulfill these promises and to make all things new. And Matthew picks up here where the Old Testament ends. Now, our Old Testament ends in, in our Bibles in Malachi. If you go back a couple of pages, you see Malachi 4, and there, there's the end. But in the Hebrew Bible, it actually ends in 2 Chronicles, the way that it was compiled. And in 2 Chronicles, interestingly, 2 Chronicles begins with a genealogy just like Matthew. So Matthew here is drawing on this particular literary form of a genealogy to establish credibility. And then the book ends with disappointment. It ends with heartache. It ends with no resolution. I mean, don't you hate a novel that ends and just leaves you hanging and there's no resolution to the plot? I mean, that's how it ends. And then 400 years of silence. And, and so when Jesus shows up and Matthew says, the beginning of Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's bringing resolution to that story. In Jesus, God himself has come into the world to rescue us, to rescue them, to rescue us from sin and Satan and death and hell and restore his good world to a place of shalom, a place of flourishing and peace and joy and love. And that's why he goes on to explain the identity of Jesus using three titles from Israel's story and the Hebrew scriptures. He says, this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, title one, the son of David, title two, the son of Abraham, title three. So let's start quickly here with Jesus Christ. Jesus, as we know, right, you, know, you guys know this, is not his first name, okay? Uh, Jesus is the word Yeshua in the Hebrew, translated Joshua. Joshua, as we know, is Moses' successor. He leads God's people into the promised land. And actually, at that time, it was very common to be named Joshua. Just like if you go to uh, Latin America, I used to live in South Florida, there's all kinds of Jesuses, right? Like, it's a very common name. It's very common to have a name of Joshua. But it was, it was a name that was freighted with all kinds of meaning. It meant God saves. That's what Joshua means. God saves his people. So we have Yeshua Christos, right? That's the second part of this title. And again, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Like, if Jesus had an Instagram, he was alive today, in, you know, in the, in the flesh, his handle would not be J. Christ or something like that. You know, his, his kids would not call him, kids would not walk around calling him Mr. Christ. 
And when he went to a restaurant with the disciples, it wasn't like, hey, Christ party of 13. There's none, none of that going on here, okay? So like, that's not his last name. It is a job description. Christos is a job description. The Greek Christos or the Hebrew Mashiach are the same word. It means anointed one. So Matthew, drawing on this deep well of promises that shape the Jewish imagination, particularly if you read the Psalms and the prophets, you'll see this kind of shadowy, not quite clear idea of a Messiah, one who would come in power and bring the reign and the rule of God. But there, there was a lot left unsaid there. And so people begin to fill that in. And by Jesus' day, the kind of common way to interpret that was that uh, God would come and overthrow the Roman Empire with the Messiah, Right? Which, again, if you read all the passages, it's not completely uh, hard to see how they get there, but they misunderstood the nature of the kind of Messiah that God was going to bring into the world. But the basic concept of a royal figure who would bring the healing power and presence of God's kingdom to the earth and restore God's people from exile is Jesus is fulfilling that. He's the son of David, and he's going to come from the royal line of David. Remember the the archetypical, the greatest of the Israelite kings, God promises David in 2 Samuel 7, you will have a son on your throne. Your kingdom will be established forever. That's the key word in that 2 Samuel 7, not just the son, which is kind of in the the short term fulfilled by Samuel, but in the long run, he says, not just the next generation, but forever. And so Jesus fulfills this promise. He becomes the true king of Israel, but Jesus transforms the idea of what a king is. When we think of king, we think of power. We think of a raw kind of exercise of violent power, um, you know, just smashing his enemies. But Jesus transforms and redeems those categories, which even David himself fails to embody in his own lifetime. Then you have son of Abraham. And essentially, if you remember the story, uh, Genesis 11, God calls Abraham uh, after he kind of resets the world with the flood. He calls Abraham Uh, Genesis chapter 12, he makes him a promise. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They will experience peace and shalom and goodness and flourishing. And so Matthew's saying, as the son of Abraham, Jesus would represent Israel. In the narrative you see in the book of Matthew, a recapitulation, like a retelling of the story of Israel, except everywhere they fail, Jesus succeeds, right? So think about the temptation in, math, in the temptation of Satan. He wins where they lose. He, he keeps the Torah in the way that Israel cannot. He is the temple. He becomes the temple. And he says, my body is the temple. He becomes the temple. And on and on, you can see all those themes through the book of Matthew. But the point is, he fulfills the vocation of Israel, the calling of Israel. What was the calling? The calling was, you're going to bless the world as you are holy, Right? That was the promise. You will become holy, and not in like a Ned Flanders buttoned up self-righteous way, but like you will be whole, and as you live in wholeness, you will be a blessing to those who come into contact as you live out this calling, and Jesus does that. The reference to Abraham is also a foreshadowing of the kind of king that Jesus is going to be. Remember the first thing that Abraham does? God tests him by calling him to sacrifice. So Jesus is going to be the king who comes not with a raw exercise of violent power, but who actually sacrifices himself and lays down his life for the good of others. And that's going to be the kind of king that Jesus is. So Matthew begins his gospel, his good news, his story by inviting his listeners, inviting us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of their deepest longings for restoration and wholeness. But that's not all that Jesus is doing In this genealogy, remember, this is no ordinary genealogy. This is a strange genealogy. This is a curious genealogy. I want us to notice just a few more. Can we handle another layer or two? You guys with me? Just another layer or two of what Jesus is doing here, and then I want to get to some invitations for us today. Three things that I want you to see that Matthew, so that's all just verse one. And you thought you knew the story. That's just verse one. Verse two gets us to all of the begats. So-and-so begat and begat and begat. Um, So what is he doing in the genealogy? Three things I want you to see, and there's many dozens of things that we could point out, but this is the hard thing about preaching Matthews every week. There's so many good things that I'm not going to get to say, and and you'll be happy because you'll get to go home on time. But um, just three that I want to draw your attention to. First is the inclusion of women in this genealogy. If you were a a listener at that time, uh, this would have been the thing that stuck out the most in this genealogy. Because the royal bloodline was traced through the fathers. Genealogies were done through the men and through the fathers. 
And so it's strange that Matthew includes no less than five women slash mothers in this genealogy. Women at that time would have only been included in a genealogy if they were royalty or had some sort of status. And what's even more bizarre is the women that he actually highlights are not the ones that I would highlight, right? Like he doesn't highlight Sarah or Rachel or Rebecca or Leah, kind of the traditional matriarchs that you think of the Old Testament. He inserts five unlikely women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and, and, and uh, it, it called Uriah's wife here. Now, why does he do that? There's all kinds of explanations offered up for that. But Janine Brown, a New Testament scholar, I think she does a great job of, of bringing us into this purpose. She says, why might Matthew be highlighting, what might Matthew be highlighting by including these particular four women? Some have suggested that each woman reflects an Old Testament story that hints of impropriety thus preparing the reader for the unusual circumstances surrounding Mary's pregnancy. Jerome, who was one of the church fathers, even suggested that all four women are the sinners of Matthew's genealogy. Side note, the men in this genealogy, way worse than the women. So that's definitely probably not what's happening. More likely, she says, Matthew is emphasizing Gentile inclusion in Jesus' own ancestry by including these four particular women, women since Tamar and Rahab are Canaanite, Ruth is a Moabite, and Bathsheba, whose national origin is not specified in the Old Testament, is explicitly called Uriah's wife, emphasizing her connection to her Gentile husband, Uriah the Hittite. If so, these women are connected not to Mary in the genealogy, but rather to a handful of Gentiles who appear in Matthew's narrative to signal God's inclusion of Gentiles in the restored kingdom, i.e. the Magi, the Roman centurion, a Canaanite woman, Pilate's wife, and on and on we can see. That's Wrinkle number one. Wrinkle number two, the alteration of names. You'll notice in your footnote here uh, at verse seven and eight that Matthew has edited these stories that have come to him. Now, for some of us, that might make us nervous. Can we trust the Bible? You know, if you're here and maybe you're not a Christian, you're like, see, this is why I don't trust it. There's all these alterations and edits and manipulations. But in ancient genealogical kind of historical work, it was common practice to both skip generations and edit the genealogy if you had a larger theological purpose, right? To say somebody's the son of somebody else is to say in the Hebrew mind especially, that could be referring to a descendant who is a child or a grandchild or a great-grandchild. It was a common practice and it was done all over the ancient world. And so we see here that Matthew has edited this for a theological point, namely that Jesus is the Messiah fulfilling the promises of God. And there's in particular too, I wanna draw your attention to, he changes Asa, uh, to Asaph, King Asa, to Asaph, the psalmist who prophesied and wrote lots of songs about the coming Messiah, if you read the book of Psalms. And he changes Amon to Amos, the prophet. And what we see here is Jesus fulfilling God's concern for both spiritual renewal, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna create a people who are gonna worship me, right? Just like the psalmist worship and give glory to God, I'm gonna create a people for myself who are going to experience Renewal, spiritual renewal. And then also one of the big themes of the book of Matthew is justice, biblical justice, social justice, right? Talking about the Psalms and the prophets. Jesus fulfills God's heart for both justice and for worship. If you read the book of Matthew, one of the big words that will come up over and over again is the word righteousness, which we often interpret, not wrongly, as sort of like a moral piety. But there's another tradition of the church that long has interpreted the word righteous to mean justice. And if every time in the book of Matthew you read the word righteous as just, it's interesting to think about how that changes the way that you read Matthew. So my point is, this is God's concern, his heart. And so right from the beginning, Matthew wants us to see how God fulfills those twin concerns that God has always been uh, about. The third thing we see is the literary design, right? The 14 generations. You notice like it's grouped in these sets of 14 um, if, if you think about 14, 14 is seven plus seven, right? So there's something God's doing here, Matthew's doing here with sevens. Sevens in the Bible kind of refer to their, if you're into numerology, their kind of uh, cycles of completion or fulfillment, right? And so you have here, if you do the math, 14 plus 14 plus 14. I'm not great at math, but I think that's 42, okay? 42 is how many sevens? Six sevens, right? Yep, Hadley, six sevens. Six sevens. Now Jesus becomes the what? Seven seven. Does that ring a bell? It should hyperlink you back to Leviticus. In Leviticus, the seventh seven is called the year of what? Jubilee. 
Jubilee is the year when slaves go free. Jubilee is the year when land returns to its original ancestral roots. It is the year when all debts are forgiven. It is the year where salvation is promised, rest is promised for the land, for the people, for the oppressed. And a lot of scholars believe that one of the reasons why Israel actually went into exile is because they never, if you notice, you read the Old Testament, they never observed the Jubilee. And that's what they're constantly, like Isaiah 58, calling them out for exploiting instead of surrendering to the Jubilee. So we have here, basically, the point is Jesus is the seventh seven. Jesus is the Jubilee. And that's why his first sermon in Luke 4, he quotes Isaiah, quoting the Jubilee, saying, the good news is here. The favor of God is on me. I'm here to preach good news to the poor. I'm here to set the captives free. I'm here to forgive debts. I'm here to give sight to the blind. That's all Jubilee language. Jesus is the Jubilee. And then if you want to go even deeper, just quickly, you can also see if you read the last one and you're a numbers person, you notice there's only 13 names in the last set. Why isn't there a 14th father? At the 14th one, it says, verse 16, Jacob fathered Joseph, not the father of Jesus, but who is Joseph called? The husband of Mary. Who is Jesus's father? Yeah, God, right. God the father is the presumed Father, he is the 14th Father. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Isn't the Bible so cool? Isn't it so amazing? How many, and I'm just skipping rocks across the surface of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Now, I don't say all that to give us cool little information about the Bible. I do hope that you'll read the book of Matthew. Every week as we're coming in and we're working through this, I would hope that you would spend some time reading the book of Matthew, read it like horizontally beginning to end and then kind of slow down and read it contemplatively, you know, little verses at a time. Next week will be in the end of one through the end of chapter two and you can go ahead and start reading that. But this is not to like impress you with information. Matthew is not writing just to give us history. Matthew is writing not for information, but for transformation. And so what does this mean for us? right now, sitting here where we are in this day, in this time, with all that we as human beings, all the complexity of Matthew meets all the complexity of who we are and how we come in here this morning. What, is, what does this say to us? I want to draw just two invitations for us this morning, then we'll go to communion. Two, two things that we'll kind of hit on and come back to over and over and over again um, in the book of Matthew. The first is I hope that through this series, as we teach and as we meditate and as we pray and as we sing, I hope that you will have a fresh encounter. I hope that we, I hope that I will have a fresh encounter with the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom story. That you will have a fresh encounter with the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom story. Until the last several hundred years, the fourfold gospel book, right? It was one book, one gospel. They didn't call them the gospels. They called it the gospel. And then you had according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. But one gospel story, each with their own emphasis. But they were central. The gospel book was central to the life and the worship and the teaching of the church. If you went to church and sat around a table in the first couple centuries, the, the, the book that you would hear exposited, the teaching you would hear exposited, probably either came from the Gospels or the prophets. That was the two things they, they kind of thought were foundational to understanding the story of Scripture. The reason for this, I think, is that in the Gospels, we get the clearest and most concentrated, like the five-hour energy drink version of an exposure to the beauty of Jesus and the kingdom of God, which is the central message of the entire Bible, you get in the Gospels the story of Jesus. You get the life of Jesus. You get the teachings of Jesus. There's five sets of teachings in the book of Matthew that work like cycles. And then you get the kingdom of God that Jesus ushered into this world. So beautiful, so technicolored, four-dimensional, so beautiful and compelling in a way that you can't see it anywhere else. And I think that's so important right now. And here's why. Because we live in a moment where the air that we breathe is the air of doubt and cynicism and deconstruction. And I know this because I have so many conversations with many of us that are tempted to walk away from our faith. And, and we're just wrestling. We're wrestling. And, 
and we're wrestling with just cynicism and despair and disorientation and the corruption of the church and the faith. And, and I think for many of us, it's just we find ourselves in 2023 having lost sight of the beauty of Jesus. As simple as that is, we're not in love with Jesus the way that we once were. Our affections are not stirred by Jesus the way they should be. We have all these distorted cultural messages that tell us about, you know, Jesus, who he was, his message, his person, his teachings. But they're like, they're, they're incomplete. They're distortions, right? We get sidetracked with secondary or tertiary theological issues. We get fixated on the failures of churches or celebrity pastors. And man, you can watch them all day long. I went down the rabbit hole with TLC over the break. I should not have done it. But it's just like a car wreck that you can't turn away from. I mean, it's just, it's bad. The complicity of the church and politics and social idolatry and injustice, people sharing weird conspiracy-laden interpretations of reality in their social media. I mean, that's just Monday morning being a Christian right now. Maybe it's not looking around you, but it's just like you look inside of you. You're like, I don't even need to look at the corruption of the church. I see the failure in my own heart. And you're very introspective, and you see the humiliating gap between who you want to be and who you really are. Right? We show up here on Sunday morning, and you, feel, you, you pretend, you project, like you've got your act together, and you present a moral version of yourself that you feel like is acceptable to the community. You do it at missional community, you do it at discipleship, you do it at work, but alone in your own private space, there is a massive gap, and there is not that love for Jesus. There is not that walking with Jesus. There is not that sense of, he is the most beautiful person in the world, and I want to give all of my life to him, not just my life on Sundays or when people are watching. You see your failure, and you just wonder, and you get discouraged. And I get discouraged, because I see it in my own life. It's easy to lose heart when our horizons of possibility are shaped solely by what we can see happening on a horizontal, linear plane. And Jesus, what I love, speaks to that in Matthew. In Matthew 24, he says, there's going to come a day, at the end of days, which we are living in the end of days. And I don't mean like some weird prophecy chart, like, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying like we live in the last days in the sense that Jesus could come back at any moment. We live in the last of the ages before Jesus comes back. And he says, this is what's going to happen. This is, he says, don't, literally, he says, don't be surprised. Here's what you should expect if you're living on the other side of my resurrection and ascension. Then many will fall away, Matthew 24. They will betray one another. They'll hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. You will lose heart, and many will fall away. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says, don't be surprised if you're tempted to lose heart. Don't be surprised if you're discouraged when you look at the state of the church. Don't be shocked when you see the ugliness when you see the hypocrisy of performative religion or hypocritical leaders or the compromise of the church, it doesn't mean we don't work to correct those things, to reform those things in the power of the Spirit. God brings judgment on all of this. That's what the exile is all about. And he will judge. And he does call us to renewal. But we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, do you realize, like read these stories. Jesus' entire family of origin was a long line of dysfunction, brokenness, and sin. That should encourage you. Failure, liars, kings who abused their power and murdered and raped and sacrificed their children to worship demon gods, prostitutes, half-hearted followers of God. The main point of the genealogy is to say, this is the human condition. The complicity that you see out there is a mirror into your own heart. And so we've got to learn to look through that to see the point is not just to deconstruct or tear down or call out, although there is a place for that. There's also a time for the Spirit of God to do construction, reconstruction, to build something different. And the point of Matthew, the point of the genealogy is, isn't God so gracious to forgive sinners? like you and me. Because I, I don't know about you, I'm not so far away from these people as I would like to think I am. That God is gracious to forgive, that he bends history towards his purposes, despite sin. And so I want us to have a fresh encounter 
with the beauty of Jesus. I want us to see the grace that transformed them as the same grace that can transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes as the flourishing one. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 1, the flourishing man, the blessed one, the God-man who came to bring a flourishing life to those who thought that kind of life wasn't possible for them. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the bankrupt. Blessed are, and that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus is the hero of this story. He is the Messiah who brings fulfillment to all of our deepest longings. He is faithful to do everything that he said he will do. He always fulfills his promises to us. And Matthew gives us, what I love about Matthew from a literary standpoint, he gives us these truths, not in propositional statements. I mean, I love Paul, but like Paul, Paul's like a lawyer. Like nobody was ever inspired by their attorney, right, or their accountant. I mean, no offense. He gives this to us like a poet, like, like a prophet in imagery and story and action that stirs our affections, our longings, our desires, that enlivens our imagination and shows us a reality that it's almost hard to believe exists, but it's actually more real than what we experience here with our five senses. And so the, the challenge is, can we look through this world, which feels the most real, to see the world that is actually real, that's come into the world through Jesus and now is being ushered in through his disciples? in the power of the Spirit. That's called apocalyptic vision, double vision, being able to see that reality. And so we see Jesus compassionately restoring health to sick people. And if you're sick, you should see yourself in that story. We see Jesus raising dead people to life. We see Jesus welcoming the poor and welcoming forgotten sinners to his dinner table, the kind of people that we want to keep at an arm's length and that we call the cops when they get too close are the people that Jesus brings to his dinner table. And we're challenged. We see Jesus calming catastrophic weather for anxious disciples, casting out demons from social outcasts, confronting hypocritical religious leaders, Matthew 23, with woes, laments, a funeral dirge. This is dying and this is coming to life. We see him subvert megalomaniac imperial rulers. We see him feed hungry people. Jesus doesn't just preach about loving our neighbor. He tells vivid stories about what it means to be a good neighbor, casting cultural enemies as protagonists. And ultimately, we see Jesus endure one of the most violent deaths imaginable as an act of sacrificial love. You want to know if God loves you? You want to know, even though you don't feel like it, if God loves you today? Watch Jesus endure the cross. Watch him go to the cross. Watch him be beaten. Watch him literally be ripped to shred for you. And then ask yourself, does God really love me or not? And then he rises from the dead to everyone's surprise, not the least his own disciples who he just spent years investing in. And he says, this is a foretaste of the kingdom of God that I'm bringing into the world. Here's all I'm saying. We need to meditate on this. We need to get this into our imagination. We need to pray these stories as if they're our stories. We need to find ourselves in these stories. We need to metabolize these stories. We need to cling to these stories and organize our lives around these stories so that they can purify our vision of Jesus, which has been distorted and clouded by all kinds of cultural appropriation and all kinds of incomplete narratives handed to us by our culture, by Google, by our churches growing up, by our parents, whatever, by our own sinful perspective. And what we want to be, just we want to come into this place of saying, gosh, Jesus is so beautiful. Because I'm amazed at how many Christians think they know the story of Jesus, and then we read this and we're like, nope, I don't know it. Or there's so much more there that I didn't see, and we want to see Jesus as beautiful and compelling, and we want to have a new imagination for the person and life of Jesus to become our life and the hope that we have in this world. Now, real quick, the second thing, and we're going to go to communion, because I'm aware of time. The second thing that we see in the second invitation that I don't want us to miss, we want to see the beauty of Jesus, and then we want to hear an invitation to this call that Jesus makes throughout Matthew to radical discipleship. Radical discipleship. Remember, Matthew is writing this story as a disciple who has joined the Jesus movement. Matthew is biography. It's, it's biography, but it's so much more than biography. It's also an autobiography of his own journey as a disciple. If you've not watched The Chosen and you've not seen the scene where Jesus looks at Matthew and he calls him, it literally will melt you. 
It's impossible. Like, you can't be human if you're not crying at that scene. It's amazing. But here's Matthew, a despised tax collector. There's, there's a category for sinners. There's sinners and there's tax collectors. Matthew's down here. And, and yet Jesus loved him. And in Matthew 9, he calls him to follow him. And I love the chosen because, like, the disciples are so mad at Jesus. <laughs> Just like, not him. We don't want him. Give us the cleaned up, respectable, middle-class person who's got their act together. Not this guy, the wealthy guy who's betrayed his people, gotten wealthy off of our backs. Anyone and everyone is invited to become a disciple. And, and what I love about this is Matthew's agenda is nothing less than a call to radical discipleship, to worship Jesus as the king and to become his disciple. And we know that's one of Matthew's key themes because he says it over and over again. Matthew chapter 4, he starts his gospel, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the first time gospel's used. The kingdom of God is here in Jesus. The beauty of Jesus is here. All of your longings fulfilled in Jesus. Come, follow me, he says. Don't just believe in me. Don't just go to church on Sunday. Don't just pray sometimes with, with your prayer beads or whatever. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then he ends the book by saying, go and make more disciples. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what I'm about. I'm about discipleship. You know what the word disciple shows up 77 times in the book of Matthew? That word mefete, it means learner or apprentice. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a Christian historically, a little Christ. A disciple is simply somebody who is seeking to organize their life around three things in, in the book of Matthew. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and learning to do what Jesus did. And that's an emphasis that you're going to see all throughout Matthew, this emphasis of formation and practice, right? Transformation, formation, practice, unlearning ways of being that we've inherited from our families and our cultural systems and the sin inside of us, and learning the way of Jesus. And that's why Jesus is constantly, like in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, you've heard it said, like your family said this, the Pharisees said this, but I tell you there's a different way of being in the world. And then he goes on to explain the deeper realities of the kingdom. That's what's happening in the book of Matthew. And that's why he ends the Sermon on the Mount with these words that are terrifying words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish person who builds his house on sand. I'm into formation. I'm not into religious movement. I'm not into celebrity pastor. I'm into you hearing the words of God and acting as if those are true, and finding that that will transform your life. That's what I'm about. So hear me say this, and we'll say this over and over again. Jesus is not just Savior and Lord, although he is those things. He is also, in the book of Matthew, presented primarily as a teacher, one who came to teach the kingdom of God. And so in that sense, he's both gift, Martin Luther says, he's both a gift to us that changes us. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who rescues us. He is the gift. And you have to read Matthew through the lens of Jesus living the life you couldn't live, dying the death you couldn't die, rising from the dead, and being offered to you as your righteousness, knowing you can't fulfill any of his teachings on your own. But after you understand that, then you also have to see Jesus as example. And Jesus comes to show us what it looks like to live out the kingdom of God. Follow me means live the way that I live. Talk the way that I talk. Take on my values. Handle your money. Handle your relationships. Think about the world the way that I do and live in my reality as if this is true. I love this quote by Dallas Willard. He says, in our culture and among Christians as well, Jesus Christ is automatically dissociated from brilliance or intellectual capacity. Not one in a thousand will spontaneously think of him in conjunction with words such as well-informed, brilliant, or smart. Far too often he's regarded as hardly conscious. He is taken as a mere icon, a wraith-like semblance of a man living on the margins of the real life where you and I must dwell. He is perhaps fit for the role of sacrificial lamb or alienated social critic, but little more. But can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he weren't smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be what Christians take him to be in other respects and not be the best informed, most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived, bringing us the best information on the most important subjects? And that's why our vision as a church is rooted really in this vision of discipleship. We want to learn together in the book of Matthew what it looks like to be a people practicing the way of Jesus together 
for the life of the world. And we're going to come and hit that over and over and over. Come and be a disciple. Come and follow Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to flourish? Let Jesus be your mentor. Let's get mentored, church. You all want to mentor? A lot of young people in this room, I want to mentor. I would love to. Let's have Jesus mentor us together over the next couple of years. Let's learn from Jesus. The easy yoke that is easy but oh so challenging. And so that's, my, that's our invitation to close and go to communion. We want to go to communion together, and we want to just receive that invitation to see Jesus as beautiful and to become his disciples. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, maybe this is just an invitation to go deeper. Maybe, maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, but, but you're, you realize, like, man, I'm, I'm at this level where I'm stuck or I'm just not sure. I need wisdom or I, I need to recapture a sense of Jesus. It's not just the truth, but it's, it's good and beautiful. And I, and I want... I want to have my affection stirred for him. I want, to, I want to love him more. I want to surrender more of myself, not just my mind, but I want to give him my heart, my soul, my body in a different kind of way this year, in this next season. And so maybe this is a time to confess and repent and to acknowledge some of the ways that there's a gap between where you know Jesus is inviting you to flourish and where you actually are right now. And so let's take some time to confess that. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you realize, man, like I'm a person of faith, but it's very generic and it's not Jesus-centered. I'm not, I'm a religious person, but I've never really come to trust Jesus. I'm certainly not following Jesus or walking in any sort of day-to-day relationship with him where he's my Lord, he's my savior, he's my teacher. And so let's just say yes. Let's just put our yes on the table. Or if that's not where you're at, let's just be committed to exploring the life and the teaching of Jesus. And maybe for the first time this year, doing a deep dive into his teachings to see if maybe some of the things that you've thought about Jesus are wrong. And maybe allow ourselves to be surprised by some of the ways he's going to subvert our paradigms and the ways that we think of him. And so let me just pray for us. And then we'll take some time to confess our sin. We'll take communion. We'll sing a song or two and send you out. Lord, I thank you for this good news of Matthew. Thank you that you, you tell this story in a way that invites us to see it as the true story of the world, the true story of not only Israel, but the true story of our lives, the fulfillment of all of our longings and hopes and dreams for human flourishing, for a kingdom, for a king. God, we desperately need this reality to become our reality. And so, God, we take heart from these stories, and we're reminded of your grace, your goodness, your love for us, and the way that you are so faithful to us and faithful to your promises in Christ by the power of the Spirit. And so, God, would you just work in our hearts? Would you humble us? Would you lead us to repent and to seek you in deeper ways this year? May we find again the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of his invitation to a radical discipleship. We pray this in your name. Amen.